want to invite us right now to come into uh, a time in our service where we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. And when you found that, if you would stand together with me, um, I'd love to read this together, and just in honor of God's Word, if we could stand for the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. The author writes this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us briefly and then we'll dive into this passage today. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? Would you open hearts and minds and ears to what you want to speak to us today. You've spoken powerfully to me this week. I'm asking now that you'd speak powerfully through me to each one uh, gathered here in person and on, online. Um, praise you for the opportunity uh, to do this today. And I just ask God, you've told us in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, accomplish that purpose, whatever it is today, in each one here gathered. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, in his classic allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you've read this before. If you've become a member here, you've been given a copy of it. So uh, um, John Bunyan powerfully describes a circumstance that uh, many, if not all of us, like if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, have likely experienced before in our lives as Christian, who's the main protagonist in the story, and his traveling companion, Hopeful, find themselves, having wandered off the king's highway, imprisoned in Doubting Castle, held captive by the giant despair. And lying there, beaten, bruised, after days without food or drink or lights, in this castle dungeon, I think despair describes perfectly how Christian and hopeful are also feeling. They're not only imprisoned by a giant despair, they're feeling despairing. That, that, that idea of despair, as, as someone else once said, is the crushing belief it's always going to be like this. But just when all hope seemed lost, Christian remembered a gift that had been given to him earlier in the journey, which he feels certain is going to bring about their freedom. And Bunyan kind of describes that, that scene like this. He says, A little before dawn, good Christian, as someone half amazed, broke out into this passionate declaration, What a fool I am to lie here in a stinking dungeon when I just as easily could walk at liberty. In my coat, next to my heart, I have a key called promise. A key, I am persuaded, will open any door in Doubting Castle. Now, spoiler alert, in case you haven't read the book, um, yeah, he's right. The, the key works. Uh, it opens the doors. They're, they're, they're free. They escape, and they're back on the king's highway within the hour. 
But I think a, a key life principle that we see illustrated in that circumstance with Christian and hopeful is the way that we too can so often find ourselves imprisoned, find ourselves defeated by circumstances that we actually have the resources to be freed from. But either because we use them too infrequently or because we've forgotten about them altogether, we, we, we remain held captive in that circumstance, in that situation. Well, we began uh, this kind of five-week mini-series last week unpacking our core values, our foundations. That is like what it is that's at the core of who we are and everything we do as a church. We don't have time this morning to kind of go back and reestablish why I think this is such an important thing for us to talk about and discuss. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen through that message. It really kind of sets the kind of full rationale of why we're doing this. But briefly stated, in the same way that you look around the city and every building, every high-rise, every structure has a foundation that supports and sustains the entire structure built on top of it, every organization, uh, even including spiritual organizations like a church, has foundations, has, has values um, at its core that shape everything about its identity and its activity. Because, if, as the saying goes, is true, what you value determines what you do. So values, incredibly important and foundational to who we are. So, so it means that the question at the end of the day is not, hey, do you have values? Or is that something that's important? The question is, do you know what your values are? Do you understand even what those things are? Or are you simply being shaped and directed every day by unidentified values that you're not even aware are shaping and directing you? So in order to ensure that we have clarity as a church about what it is that's at the core of who we are, as well as that, that our values, the things that are important to us are aligned with our stated destination and our vision of where it is we're trying to reach, we're taking these five weeks to kind of do a deep dive on our values so that these things that are already core to our identity as a church become even more deeply rooted and established in us together as a whole. Last week we looked at the first of five core values, the Word of God. And the way we stated that value that's at the core of everything we are and do is this. We are a people of the Word. We come to it humbly and with expectation, finding truth and light and the fullness of life itself in the God that it reveals. That's how we stated this first value. The next value I want to dig in now together with you today is prayer. Prayer is also something we value here and that it's at the core of who we are and what we do. And the way that we've chosen to state this value is like this. We are a people of prayer. We rest in the presence and operate in the power of the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That's how we're stating this value of prayer, which I trust that that's a statement that doesn't need any kind of caveats or provisos when you read that you can be kind of like yeah except to say I know I just said we didn't have any and I'm going to give you one except to say that whatever truth we might say yeah that's that's a true statement about prayer we can come into God's presence through prayer we can access the power of God himself through prayer although there's truth in that statement it's a true statement about prayer that we still regularly fail either to really believe 
where to operate in. Maybe you can already see you're putting the, the dots together here as to why I began talking about Christian and hopeful. Stuck in Doubting Castle, even though they had the resource available for them to walk out the front door the entire time. Because what else is prayer? But an invitation into the very presence of God. And yet how often do we forget or forego that access and miss out on the rest that God graciously offers us in His presence? And what else is prayer but an invitation to operate, not in our own strength and power, but in the immeasurable greatness of God's? And yet, how often do we spend away the little strength that we have, struggling to accomplish something, and then only turning to Him at last when all of our own efforts have failed? Which isn't to say that this isn't at the core of who we are. I mean, it probably sounds like, is this really a core value of our church? It is. Yeah, it is. This is absolutely at the core of who we are and how we operate. But, but my, my desire for us today in digging into this is only that we might individually and collectively learn to become even more deeply rooted in both our belief and our practice in the importance and value of prayer. That, that, that's the goal of what I'm trying to accomplish here today. And in order to help us see that, and then I, I pray continue to move closer, continue to build in our momentum towards that end. I want to look at our passage today just in two ways. I want to talk about the grace of confident access and then the hope of divine empowerment. The grace of confident access and the hope of divine empowerment. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, could you open it again with me to that passage, Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14. Follow along with me as we unpack this next of five values that's at the core of who we are and who we hope to be as a church. So let's do this. Let's look first of all at the grace of confident access. The grace of confident access. And when it comes to something like access, um, accessing something, getting to something, my, my understanding and my belief is that every single person here has, has some story, has some experience in their lives about wanting access, wanting access to a person, to a place, to a thing, but, but being denied it. Yeah? Probably everyone has an experience like that. So, so maybe the thing you wanted access to was someone's heart. You, you were so deeply in love with them, but they didn't feel the same way. And so you were denied that access to their heart. Maybe it was about meeting your favorite rock star or, or uh, celebrity of some kind. Maybe you wanted to meet one of the royals when they came to visit Vancouver or, or a politician. But because of security concerns, right, almost nobody gets access. So, so you're denied access. We probably all have stories like this. I still can remember it's when I was 16 or 17 years old. Uh, my best friend and I coming down to Vancouver to see Mel Torme perform at the Orpheum Theater, which was a huge deal for me. I imagine like 95% of you don't even know who that is. But Mel Torme, the Velvet Fog, as he was known, this guy was like on the same level as guys like Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, like an amazing performer. So for us, this is like a moment of a lifetime to see this incredible performer live and in person on stage. But then after the show, I don't know why, we just kind of hung out in the theater. We just stayed and milled around as people were filing out. You know, I guess like Susie Given wasn't there to tackle us and tell us to get out of there. And so we were just hanging out in the theater. We walked right up to the stage to kind of see like, man, what is it like to perform here and amazing? And I looked back into the wings and lo and behold, there was Mel Torme just standing in the wings talking with someone. And before we could even think about the wisdom of what we were doing, we jumped up on the stage and snuck back into the wings 
and actually got a chance to meet him. Now, he was very gracious and, and talked to us for a few minutes. He even signed our, our ticket stubs. But the whole point is, we weren't granted access to CML Torme. We, we, we stole it. We just stole it with the hope that, that, you know, that he would actually talk to us and we wouldn't be arrested. So, uh, but still, so we, we, we wanted access, and, and even then, we weren't really granted it. We were denied it, but we just kind of stole it. But whatever other difficulty and impossibility you may have experienced in your own life as it relates to accessing someone else or something else, every single person knows and has experienced a galaxy of distance as it relates to our access to God. Having access into His presence, we all understand what it feels like and, and what that experience is to be denied access. It's access we're told that we lost all the way back at the beginning of time, when the first bearers of God's image, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God's good rule, brought sin into the world, and thus, as a result, we were cut off from God's presence in the garden. We were expelled from the garden and being in God's presence. Interestingly, even before we were expelled from the garden, because they had sinned, because of the shame they felt, we're told Adam and Eve, actually, they hid themselves. They, they moved away from God's presence because they felt I can't be in his presence because of what I've done. But as we often say here, in the very moment that we lost God's presence, God made a promise. God made a promise that one day he would send a rescuer, the seed of the woman, who, who would make all of this that had pulled us apart, he would repair the distance. He would repair the, the access and relationship that had been lost. He would restore it. Now, interestingly, even by the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, you see the beginnings of a sacrificial system whereby uh, kind of a limited provisional access to God is restored. Uh, certainly nothing like what it was before, um, but you, you see this um, kind of seed form beginning as they are allowed to enter into God's presence in kind of this provisional way and, and, and return. But the fact is the sin that first separated them remains now. It's always constantly there, and so these sacrifices need to continually be brought. And then, of course, building out into the story, by the time we get to Moses and Aaron and Exodus and Leviticus, we've got a much more detailed sacrificial system that God has laid out of, like, this is how you can have this kind of provisional, limited access to me. Only now, uh, in this case, um, it's the high priest. The high priest takes these sacrifices and then he, he alone can come into the presence of God behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He can go in there and, and bring those offerings of God from the people to God and he can be in his presence. But even then, only once a year, the Day of Atonement, can he come into God's presence. So it's very limited, so, so much different than the freedom of access that we once had in the Garden of Eden. And always and ever, year after year, generation after generation, God's people are waiting and longing for this rescuer to at last come and restore the access that's been lost for all time. And, and maybe in, in light of the passage that we just read this morning, maybe you're beginning to already kind of connect the dots of what I'm talking about. Maybe, maybe not. That's okay. But do you see, this, this is why the way Hebrews describes Jesus over and over again here as our high priest is so significant why this matters so much. For the role of a high priest throughout Israel's history was a mediator, someone who stood between mankind and God and who would bring the sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls into the presence of God on their behalf so that they could be forgiven, so that they could have that access, at least in a limited provisional way, 
restored, that, that connection restored. But Jesus is not like any other high priest. His role as high priest is so entirely different, which is why the author of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 10, 20, referencing the way that the temple veil that separated the presence of mankind and God was torn in two from top to bottom at Jesus' death, Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. He says, we can now, all of us, all people who trust in Jesus, he says, can now enter the holy place. And we enter not by the blood of sacrifices of lambs and bulls and animals, but by the blood of Jesus. He says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Which means he provides not just this kind of limited provisional access, he opens the way wide for complete access now into the presence of God that, that the high priest only had once a year. We have access like that always now because of what Jesus did. So how could, how could Jesus do that? How could he make that access available? Well, because as the author of Hebrews says in verse 15, look with me here. Although Jesus was made like us in every way, he's made human, although he was tempted to sin, he was tempted to act in ways that, that would keep him separated from God just like us, he remained without sin. He obeyed God perfectly, which means Jesus retained that access to God in a way that even, even the high priests throughout Israel's history could not. He had an access that, that no one else did. But the point is, rather than just hoard it to himself, even though he deserved to do it, he was the one who had earned and deserved to be in God's presence. Instead, Jesus laid down. He, he gave up his access. As the Apostle Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that, that well-known passage, maybe to a lot of you, Jesus took the punishment for our sin. He took on the things that separate us from the presence of God, and then he granted us his access. He granted us his access key or whatever it is into the very presence of God for all time. Complete access, the access of the Son is now granted to you and to me through faith in Jesus. Incredible. Which means, look at this, this is why the author of Hebrews can even speak there in verse 16 about any of us drawing near to God's throne. And look, not just drawing near, but drawing near boldly and continually into his presence with confidence with the assurance that rather than rejection and condemnation, we'll find mercy and grace to help in every time of need. How can we do that? Because through faith in Jesus, we now come into God's presence with the perfect record of the Son credited to us. It means we can now come into His presence as though we never lost it. I don't know if you've ever been uh, given a house key to someone else's house. You know, you might be taking care of their pets or bringing in a bunch of Amazon packages that they know are coming or whatever. And you know, you come into their house, and even though you're granted access, you still are kind of like, I know I'm not really supposed to be here. I'm, I can do this job, but then I got to get out. But contrast that with the feeling of when you put the key in your own front door and just walk into your own home. Similar experiences, but still radically different in the way it feels, right? It means the kind of access that Jesus has offered us is so remarkably different. It's not just, yeah, you're allowed in, but you're not really supposed to be here. The point is, if through faith in Jesus, we have access restored like a son or daughter walking in the front door of our own home. That's the kind of access he's granted. It's an access 
that is granted to every single one of us through faith in Jesus, the access of a child into the presence of the Father. It's an incredible opportunity, staggering when you think about it. And, and the only question I want to ask you, in light of what we've just looked at here, the, the, the way that Jesus has made open to us into the presence of God is, are you taking advantage of the offer? Are you, are you taking advantage of that incredible offer at every possible opportunity available to you? Or like Christian and hopeful, do you remain neglectful, even forgetful uh, altogether of, of the rest that's available to you in the presence of God? The rest that's being grant, you've been granted free and unhindered access to. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is all about taking Jesus up on his offer. Again and again, taking Jesus up on his offer, coming into the presence of the Father, finding rest, finding mercy, finding grace, and in every point of need, every point of temptation, every point of trial, finding it again and again in him. It's an invitation to you. Which, hear me, that's not for a moment to suggest, okay, great, this is not like a name it and claim it kind of thing. You just bring whatever your need is, and Jesus, he'll, he'll fix it right up. He'll get right on that for you. Uh, um, uh, just in, in whatever way and, and, and how and, and, and at the timing that you feel like it should happen. No, I mean, actually, sometimes it's God's mercy and grace not to give us the thing that we want so much because he can see the destructive ends that we can but it is to say that for far too many of us, accessing the very presence of God through prayer, even though it's this immense privilege, we take far too little advantage of it. We're even forgetful of it to use it, even though it's no more than a thought away. It's, it's right in our heart breast pocket. It's right there available to us, and we're forgetful or neglectful to use it, even though it's available to us always. Think about our attitudes to prayer, what we think about it. Some of us, we yawn at prayer. We roll our eyes at prayer as though it's this kind of just like, it's nothing more than a religious exercise that we, you know, take part in before meals or exams we haven't studied enough for. For other people, uh, maybe we shrink back from that access because like Adam and Eve, we, we, when we failed God in some way, we feel like we no longer deserve it. So we don't, take advantage of the access because of that reason? All kinds of different reasons. And yet, the access has been made open and available as a son or daughter. The freedom to walk in the front door of your own home. That's the access that we have had made for us. Tim Keller says that so simply and beautifully when he writes, the only person that would dare to wake a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. But then he says, we have that kind of access. So are you making use of it? Kind of reestablishing the immense privilege and beauty of, of what it is we've been invited into, the access that we have. How will you make use of it differently today? How will you make use of it differently this week? Recognizing both the incredible privilege of that access that you've been granted, as well as remembering the fact that your access into the presence of God was never about your deserving to begin with. So it's available to you now. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, that access is available to you now and always. Let's, let's be those people who take better and greater and more frequent advantage of it always. 
so much more we could say, but that, that's, that's the grace of confident access. It's God's grace to invite us in. The last thing I want to look at together with you is the hope of divine empowerment. The hope of divine empowerment. This matters for every time that we're in a kind of a situation just like Christian and hopeful we're in, where it feels beyond our control and outside of our strength and ability to overcome. But if you think about just the circumstances that Christian and hopeful were suffering under, they, they were first of all racked with guilt. They were feeling foolish both for having trespassed on the giant's property and then being foolish enough to be caught. So they're sitting there stuck in their own problem that they created and feeling guilty, foolish. They, they're being held captive by someone, this giant, who was far bigger and stronger than either of them even them combined. They're, they're being uh, starved, starved of food and water and light. They're being beaten down repeatedly. They're held in a dungeon behind thick walls and solid doors. And considering all that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a story. I get it. But anybody ever felt like that in your own circumstance of life? Tired, beaten down, intimidated? feeling stupid because you know it was your own choices that got you into this mess, but now you feel like there's no hope for escape? Yeah, I have. I felt that way lots. Well, for the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to here, they're going through a similar situation like this, which is why he's writing to them. They were experiencing this extreme persecution for having put their faith in Jesus. From making that choice to be, I'm going to follow him, I'm going to be baptized and recognized as one of these Christians. They're experiencing this extreme persecution from devout Jews and uncompromising Romans, and they felt like they couldn't make it. They felt like there was no way they'd have the strength to make it to the end. Which is why you see there in verse 14, look, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So, so holding fast to that confession, that, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Christ in the face of persecution to abandon that confession, that's what they're being encouraged to do here. But notice, look, the reason he says that they, that they can do that is not because they owe it to Jesus. Hey, look at all Jesus has done for you. You can suffer a bit for him. He doesn't say even just like, you've got it in you. Just, just push harder, keep, keep working, you got this, and don't worry, Jesus is going to be at the finish line for you. That's not what he says, look. He says the reason they can hold fast to this confession is not because they're strong enough in themselves to hold fast at all, but because Jesus, the risen Son of God, is strong enough. And because he will enable them to be able to hold fast to that confession. He's going to be the one that enables them to do this. You notice again, the author of Hebrews, he's using that same image of Jesus as a high priest. But notice, he doesn't just call him a high priest. He says he's a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Yeah, what's that about? Well, what he's doing is he's pointing these people to the resurrection. He's saying that's the key of what it means to understand both your access as well as the power that you have access to. Because what he's referring to is Jesus, how after giving his life and making that access to God available once again, rose victorious over sin and death and then ascended into heaven. That, that, that's what it's referring to. So when it speaks of his ascension into heaven, it's kind of encapsulating the fullness of what Jesus came and accomplished. So the first thing he says to encourage them in this 
way of, of helping them to stand firm and hold fast to their confession is he's, he's reminding them of the resurrection. He's reminding them of Jesus' power to overcome life's greatest enemy, death. Because he's saying, like, this is one of the key hopes of the gospel, is that because Jesus overcame death, even if we are crushed, even if we are killed for holding fast to our confession, Jesus has still got us. He will raise us up too because he was raised. So it gives us hope no matter what the circumstance is, whether we're delivered out of it or not. Then again, verse 15, he goes on to talk about Jesus' experience of true humanity. Because we could have this idea, if Jesus is up in the heavens now, he's removed from our experience. He doesn't really understand what it's like. And so he describes Jesus' experience of temptation. He says, Jesus knows what it feels like to want to abandon your calling. He knows what it feels like to want to just like give up and step out of the race himself. He, he experienced that, which means it means Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He's been there. He knows what it feels like to feel afraid, to feel like giving up. But what's different about Jesus is that unlike every other person in history, Jesus was the only one who didn't give up, who had the strength to stand against temptation and, and push through to the end and be victorious. He's the only one that could ever do that. And by doing that, he accomplished the purpose for which he came, which was to make access available to you and to me. So even if we have failed, even when we, we recognize we're not worthy to be in the presence and power of God, he grants us the privilege of access, but not just access. He grants us the privilege of access to his greatness, the greatness of his power to stand and be victorious over temptation. Whatever it is that's facing you today, he gives you access to the strength to stand just like he did. Not because you're strong enough, but because he is. Which means when you think about how to apply this to your everyday life now, this isn't about only answering the question of whether or not you're taking full advantage of this offer of access that you have into the presence of God at every opportunity. It means, do you understand what's available to you whenever you access God's presence? You see what, what, what you have access to. For without an ounce of overstatement, what, what you're accessing whenever you bring your need confidently to the throne of God's grace is not only rest in his presence. It is also access to the resource of his power to overcome challenges that are on your own you'd never be able to overcome. You're being given access to that strength and power. And you see this actually in seed form in the life and ministry of Jesus uh, when he's ministering and, and growing his disciples over the years and he grants them at different times uh, ability of his power, um, authority and power over demonic forces. He grants them authority and power over sickness and disease. Uh, there's even a time, remember, Jesus, he curses a fig tree and it, and it withers and the disciples are like, wow, that's crazy. And he says essentially like, guys, you think that's incredible? If you have faith in me, even the size of a mustard seed, you can tell that mountain to throw itself into the ocean and it will. That's the kind of access to power that you have through faith in me. And I know that doesn't mean God gives everyone who has faith in him like heaven's credit card and uh, the keys to the minivan to just go and fill up on anything and everything that you might want to ask for and, and go accomplish. That's not what it's saying, but it is to say even the smallest amount of faith placed in Jesus gives us access to heaven's entire storehouse of energy, of, of ability, of, of power to overcome anything and everything and, and accomplish and endure and overcome things that in your own strength you'd never be able to accomplish and endure and overcome. That's why 
Paul tells us, for instance, in that classic passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, and he's talking about standing against the devil and his schemes. He says, not, 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 not stand up and be strong. He says, we're strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or in that classic doxology earlier in Ephesians 3, after Paul finishes praying that the Ephesian church will be uh, strengthened with the, the power of the Spirit in their, inner being, in their inner being, he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So what do you need his power to stand against today? What is it that's causing you to feel despairing? Like, I feel like it's always going to be like this. I'm never going to have victory over this. What's that, that struggle, that situation, those circumstances that you've been trying, you've been doing everything you can to stand up against and found you're just getting pummeled again and again and your strength feels weaker every time you try to fight it again? What's that addiction that continues to enslave you? The addiction you know in your saner moments you're not overcoming. And again, each time you come to it and face it again, you come with less strength, less ability to stand against it. Will you bring these things to Jesus today? Will you lay it down at his feet, place it in his hands, leave it to him to accomplish what in your own strength and ability you never could? And that maybe, maybe that you never would. Because here's the thing, this isn't always the case at all. Absolutely not. But sometimes what's actually keeping us imprisoned and beaten down under that circumstance, locked in that dungeon, tied down, isn't even the circumstance itself anymore. Sometimes what's holding us there is actually our pride. Our pride in, in not being willing to admit defeat. Willing to admit I can't do this in my own strength. And so I'm just going to keep trying and, and, and moving ahead. I'm not going to try to access, I'm not going to go to God with this because I should be able to deal with this on my own. Of course, I'm, I'm just going to try again. I'm just going to try again. I'm just going to try again. And yet, as we learn eventually, or hopefully we do in everyday life, true strength is not about pretending to be strong when you're not. True strength is not about pretending to have the answer when you're clueless. True strength, real strength in life, is being willing to say, I can't. Would you please help me? It takes so much strength to say that. To say, I, I, I don't know which way to go next. Will you show me? Which when you're strong enough to finally acknowledge your need of makes this privilege of access to God's presence and power made forever available to us all the more needful and glorious. It should make us want to access this so much more regularly than we do because there's nothing more to do the work's already been done. He's done everything necessary in order to make that available and to offer it to you, the strength with which to stand and to fight. The only work that's left, if we can call it that, is the work of humility, of just like being willing to admit, I can't, and to, and to accept his grace and mercy to help in our time of need, or the work of remembering, the work of remembering that the key to our freedom has been in our possession the whole time. That's the only work that's left to do now. For remembering the work of Jesus, our great high priest. Remember we talked about how 
the role of the high priest. This was cool to see. Uh, he was only allowed on that one day, right, the Day of Atonement, to enter into God's presence. When we think about the work, how he's accomplished all the work for us, David Peterson connects uh, the dots, I think, between the, that role of an earthly high priest and what Jesus, our true and greater high priest, accomplished in his life and death and ascension. When he says this, on the annual Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest, they offered sacrifices outside the tabernacle or temple and then entered into the inner tent or sanctuary in order to intercede for the people on the basis of the offerings that he had made. In many different passages, Hebrews suggests the fulfillment of this ritual in the death of Jesus. Jesus who was crucified outside the city gates. Jesus who then was buried and then ascended into heaven and intercedes for us always. His ascension into heaven, his work of intercession at the right hand of God. Jesus lives out the reality of that work that the high priest did that one day of a year, but he does it now for all time. It never needs to be repeated. The work is done. George Guthrie, a friend who uh, teaches out at Regent here, and he's come here a few times to teach, he, he adds this. He says, Hebrews makes much of the uniqueness and superiority of the son's high priestly role. Rather than one who stands between God and humanity, Jesus takes us to God, ripping away the moral and ritualistic obstacles that prevented our free entrance to his presence. He not only passed through the heavens, but he also paved the way for us to join him in the adventure. Incredible. I think N.T. Wright sums up so much of what we looked at together this morning perfectly, and I'm going to close with this summary from him. He says this, we're not trying to catch the attention of someone who has little or no concern for us. Verse 16 puts it like this, we are coming to the throne of grace. That's a way of saying, first of all, that we're coming to the throne of God, and secondly, that we must now think of God as the God of grace, and we must come boldly and confidently. But he goes on here, this isn't arrogance. Indeed, if we understand who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's still doing on our behalf, the real arrogance would be to refuse his offering, or to accept his offering of standing before the Father on our behalf, to imagine we had to bypass him and try to do it all by ourselves. We are a people of prayer. We rest in the presence and operate in the power of the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You see the value of what it is that's being offered. And so that's how I want to close our time together. Understanding, I hope, better now, the access freely available to us through prayer as well as accessing what it is we're accessing, the power of God himself when we come to him in prayer. I want to put this value into practice right now as God's people, as a church, and bring our need to him. Come to him expecting to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. 